Amen. Amen. Okay, we'll go on with our fellowship. Raising up the next generation, I think we, we all were impressed that this is a, a very, very important matter in the church life. If, uh, if we neglect it, we're, we may not feel the effects right away, but we will feel the effects eventually. So let's take, let's take the view that we saw in the first message that we're looking ahead to the Lord's move 10 or 20 years from now Amen. and trying to prepare the vessels that the Lord will be able to use at that time. Uh, this next outline is also um, covering a, a kind of biblical principle. Uh, just to let you know, the, uh, the two that we will have this afternoon are more on the side of practice. I know everybody's interested in how do we, how do, we do it. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> but this is another important view that we need to pick up. Um, and, and I'll tell you, this message was also given in Taiwan. It was also given uh, at the time that we were beginning to practice the God-ordained way, and uh, that would be the mid-'80s. And um, I don't know, uh, so, some of you were here, some were not. Um, prior to that... I did not have this clear of a view that for God to build the church, he actually, the basic unit for the building up of the church is not an individual. It's a household. I never really understood that until we began to fellowship about the God-ordained way and we realized how important are the homes and um, it makes sense. It's the basic unit of human society. Human society is not built on individuals. It's built on families. And the church life is not built on individuals. It's built on households. So it only makes sense that God's salvation would be for households. He, he really, he can use individuals, but he can do a lot more with a household. So I always tell the young brothers, if you get married, you'll become much more useful. Because as an individual, you do have usefulness. As a household, you, it more than doubles your usefulness. It more than doubles it. Because the, the Lord really can use a household much more than he can use an individual. So this outline is telling us that the, in the practice of the God-ordained way and in the pattern that we see in the New Testament, God's salvation is for households. Sometimes people misapply this. Um, let me just deal with two misconceptions here at the beginning so that we get them out of the way. First of all, uh, when we say that God's salvation is for a household, 
We mean your household, not your parents' household. For example, I I come from a family of nine children. I was the first one to be saved. Uh, The principle of household salvation does not apply to my parents' family. It applies to my family, my children. I didn't understand that when I was young. But anyway, by, by the Lord's mercy, I was able to preach the gospel to my siblings. And I'm happy to tell you, all eight of them got saved. And my mother, finally, when she was 65. But strictly speaking, this is referring to the head of a household, the head of a household. So it's that household. If you are the head of a household, your household, the principle is your household should follow you as the head to be saved. Okay, the second misconception is that this is some kind of guarantee. It's not. It's principle. We can pray according to this principle, but we have to understand it's not a guarantee. The very first human family, only two of the three children followed their parents. And the other case, which is mentioned in the Bible in Romans chapter 9, is Jacob and Esau. Not only are they in the same family, they're twins. They're twins of godly parents. But one followed, one did not. We have to understand that, uh, and and I say this so that you won't accuse God. I've known people who said, I prayed for my household, God didn't answer, that they became bitter. Well, it's a principle, it's not a guarantee. And we can tell the Lord, and, 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 and it's true that he, his way is to gain households. So we, 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 we pray for the household. But that's like saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2, our Savior God desires that all men would be saved. He does desire that all men would be saved, but all men will not be saved. So please don't confuse these things. What we have here is a principle in the Bible, and it's a strong principle. The strong principle is God, when he saves a person, he would like to save that entire house because that house will become the building block for the church in that place, along with all the other houses. I I was asking the brothers earlier, I just happened to ask, I said, oh, how, how many saints are meeting in the Solomon Islands? And the brother gave a very good answer. He said, there's four or five homes. Yeah, that's the way to look at it. There's four or five homes. That's the church life. It, it really, if there's a bunch of individuals, it doesn't mean quite as much, does it? But four or five homes, that sounds good. That's, that's, a, that's a little church life and uh, something that can be built up. So this is God's way. He would like to have households where the whole house 
is following him. It's a beautiful thing. We've all seen that. It's lovely. Um, Okay, so let's read a little bit. In considering the exercise and practice of the God-ordained way to preach the gospel, we must include the unit of salvation. God's promise of salvation takes the household as a unit, not the individual. So why are we talking about this today? Because very often, it's not the head of the household who gets saved first. I heard a very good testimony from Fiji. A brother came into the church through his five-year-old. Where's the brother who came into the church through his five-year-old? Share with us, brother. How'd that happen? Tell us about how your, how your five-year-old brought you into the Lord's recovery. Amen. Uh, yeah. This was back in uh, 2004. Uh, I was not yet uh, in the uh, church life. But uh, it was through my son, who was five years old at that time, that uh, his auntie was in the uh, church in Suwa. And the auntie used to come by every Sunday to pick him up, to bring him to uh, the meetings. And uh, after a couple of meetings, one Lord's Day, they never turned up to uh, pick him up. And he started crying. <laughs> and he asked us why am I not going to the meeting today and he said oh you do not know maybe they forgot about you this morning but then I said oh not to worry next week I'll take you but then the following week came and uh, the auntie never turned up again and then I thought oh he started crying again Asked us again. Uh, they haven't come this week to pick me up. And I said, oh, don't worry. Next week, I'll take you to the meeting. Yeah. This happened for about three weeks. And uh, my wife uh, told him on the third week, or oh, not to worry for surely, I'll take you to the meeting the following week. So the following week came by and uh, his auntie came by to pick him. So we never went, uh, my wife never came to the meeting. Then the following week, they never came, so I decided, oh, I'll take you to the meeting. So I got dressed that morning, and I brought him to the meeting. And as I just walked into the uh, hall in Suba, the saints were just uh, singing. And I just felt within me, wow, this is the place I need to be. Something just touched me when I heard the saints. And uh, when I came into the meeting... They were calling on the name of the Lord, and I just joined in. Amen. Yeah, I just had this uh, wonderful joy within me. I just said, wow, all this time I never knew that there was a group of people meeting here. Yeah. And uh, from then on, we used to come to the uh, meetings from 2004 till today. Amen. Yeah. So the, par- the parents follow the children. <laughs> I think there was a, there was another one, wasn't there, Paul? That wasn't there another one whose 
who followed their children? Or am I not remembering right? Is there somebody else who had that experience? I'll tell you what. Uh, I, my wife and I were coordinating with a younger couple for a, a small group meeting for many years. We were... Our, our two families, my family and this younger couple, we were we coordinated together for 13 years for a small group meeting, and it's a much younger couple, and they had quite young children, and uh, their next door neighbor had young children, and the kids were friends. Their their little children and the next door neighbor's little children were friends. So the sister decided to have a little neighborhood children's meeting in a very, very informal way. You know what I mean? It's nothing official. But whenever the next-door neighbor kids would come over, she'd make them a little snack, sing some songs, tell them some stories. And those kids, the neighbor's children, they wanted to be at her house every day. They just wanted to come every day. So our group meeting was Friday night, and one Friday night, the, we, we actually never invited the parents. The, the kids were there, and the parents came to get the kids, but our group meeting was going on, so they stayed, and they, they were unbelievers. And um, long story short, it took time. That entire family was saved. They were all baptized. They're still in the recovery today. This was a number of years ago. Um, this was an unbelieving family. Our brother was a believer when his son led him to the church in Suva. <laughs> this was an unbelieving family. And we had this happen twice. The other one was my children were older. They were in high school at the time. And my daughter went to school with this girl who uh, kind of befriended my daughter. And one day my daughter told me, she said, Dad, uh, I've got a friend at school. i uh, kind of like to, you know, maybe invite her over, but I don't think you would like her. I said, what do you mean I wouldn't like her? <laughs> she said, well, she has blue hair. I said, I love people with blue hair. Blue hair is actually my very favorite color of hair. I said, invite her over. So the girl with blue hair came to dinner, and she was a high schooler. She received the Lord. She got baptized. And then a few weeks later, she brought her little sister, who was a junior high girl. She did not have blue hair. She had regular hair. <laughs> she got saved, and she got baptized. Amen. So, then, so now we have a junior high and a high schooler in our group meeting, new believers. Eventually, it took time, eventually the mother came. The mother got saved. We baptized her when she was 49 years old, doing a new believer at the age of 49. And then, a few years later, the father came. We baptized him when he was 55 years old. 
That whole family is in the church life today. All started with the kids. That's why we're fellowshipping about households today in the context of serving with children, junior high and high schoolers. You have to realize um, at that age, you know, the parents are very concerned for their... I've been there, so have you. When you have kids in junior high and high school, you're desperate. If there's some, somebody who has an answer, you'll listen. It's just, that's a hard, hard time. And, you know, because we took care of these two girls, that mother, the mother of those two girls, she, oh, she told my wife at that time, she said, you're my best friend in the whole world. <laughs> you know, my wife actually didn't feel that way about her, but she felt that way about my wife because you, you took care of my girls. So hard to take care of a junior high and high school girl. You did it. But to this day, that sister and my wife, this was quite a few years ago, to this day, they're very close spiritual companions. And um, it all started with the children. And from the children, it went to the household. Now, it can work the other way. I've seen it work the other way very often, and especially among us, like in my own family. Uh, my wife and I, we came into the church life as college students. We, we uh, got married. We, we had children, and, and our children followed us to believe in the Lord, to be in the church life. It's just normal. That's just the normal situation. And that's what we should pray for. That's what we should uh, seek the Lord for, understanding that in the end, the child will choose. They just will. And that's, that's inevitable. We can't really choose for them. But we certainly can guide them. And almost always, they will go in the direction that they're guided. Not always. Okay, let's read on. Concerning eternal life, the Bible takes the individual, not the household, as the unit. You cannot receive eternal life for your children or for anyone else. So in the matter of receiving eternal life, yes, it's very much an individual matter. It has to be. So concerning eternal life, the household is not the unit. However, concerning salvation... The Bible shows that men are saved by household. Sometimes we use these words interchangeably, salvation and uh, regeneration or receiving eternal life. They're not actually quite the same thing, are they? Um, Regeneration is an individual receiving eternal life into their spirit so that they become a child of God. Salvation is a broader term, according to the New Testament. Especially you see it in Acts chapter 2, right after Peter preached the gospel. He told the people, be saved from this crooked and perverted generation. So to be saved includes being regenerated. You need to be regenerated in order to be saved. But to be saved is something a little more. To be saved is, I'm not only regenerated, I'm called out. 
of this generation into the church life. That's what that's, Peter didn't say come into the church life, but what comes right after that? The church life. So that's really what he was saying. Be saved out of this generation into the church life. You have to have eternal life to do that. But God's way is, as we will see in this outline, his way is to bring households into the church life. Okay, B says we hope, this is something I mentioned in the previous meeting, we hope that all the children born to us will not need our extra effort in the future to rescue them out of the world. We're already doing that with all of our new contacts. Every new contact we make, we have to rescue them out of the world. We hope that that will not have to happen with our own children. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. But even when our children go into the world, they rarely go as far into the world as the others. Some have already been born into our fleshly family. We should also make sure that they're born into our spiritual family. I always tell my two daughters, I say, I'm sorry, I apologize that I passed on to you the Adamic life and nature. I had no choice. I'm sorry that you got my DNA. But be thankful that I also helped you to get regenerated. <laughs> right? We, we did... We did give them the human life. We also need to help them receive the divine life. Whether or not the church will go on in the next generation depends on whether we can bring our own children to the Lord. If we lose as many as are born to us, our second generation will be gone. And I would not like to be in a church life that was populated by people like me. I came from the world. I came not from a Christian family, not from the church life. I, I like the church life. I love, I love this glorious church life because it has these people who were born in Zion and raised up in the church life. Wow, it... it it's much better. It's much better to have some of these people in the church life. If generation after generation, all those who are born into our midst stand fast, and if we have some increase from the outside, the church will be strong and its number will increase. We must never give birth to a child only to lose it later. Instead, those who are born to us must be regenerated. You know, brothers and sisters, I really believe, and I, I, I have seen exceptions, but I really believe if we pray as parents and uh, later on today we'll talk about the need of patterns, the need of shepherding, but if we pray as parents and and, and guide our children in the direction of salvation, they should all be regenerated. They, there shouldn't be even one who is not regenerated. 
Uh, later on, they may choose to participate in the church life. They may not. But all of them should be regenerated. We should, we should take this as a very definite goal. If, if you have any children who are not regenerated, we need to pray. Uh, the Lord certainly wants to see all of our children regenerated. Okay, now the next section is just to give us the biblical principle that salvation in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is by household. And again, I say it's not a teaching. There's not a teaching in the Bible that says God saves men by households. But what there is is a pattern, and it's consistent. It's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The first is the case of Noah. God didn't just call Noah. He called Noah and his family. It wasn't one man who went into the ark. It was, what, eight? Yeah, eight. It was Noah, his wife, and his children. And the ark signifies not only regeneration, but salvation. Salvation from that age. Salvation from that age which was about to be judged by God, by the flood. That salvation was the ark, which signifies both Christ and the church life. You know, to be regenerated, you just need Christ. To be saved, you need Christ and the church. you got to get the church life along with Christ. And that's what the ark signifies. And that was for an entire family. Then in Genesis 17, with Abraham... Not only Abraham was circumcised, the entire family was circumcised, the whole house. And in the type of the Passover in Exodus 12, it tells us very clearly the lamb was slain for the house. Interesting, huh? One lamb, not not a lamb per person, a lamb per house. So God's salvation in this case was the salvation out of Egypt. He passed over, when he judged the Egyptians, he passed over the Israelites, but that wasn't the end. He brought them out of Egypt. How? By households. By households. The priesthood is by household. We saw that in the book of Numbers. Priests are not individuals. They're households. You have a household of priests. That's for the service of the church. The household salvation of Rahab, the harlot, book of Joshua. You know, I feel sorry for Rahab. Every time the Bible mentions her name, it says Rahab the harlot. (laughs) If I was Rahab, I'd say, hey, I got saved. Me and my family, we all got saved. Quit calling me Rahab the harlot. Just call me Rahab. But the Bible wants us to know that such a person and her entire household could be saved. It was like Mary, you know, it says, Mary from whom the Lord cast out seven demons. I'd say, leave that part out. They're gone. The demons are gone. But we need to know that, that this kind of person can experience God's salvation. This kind of person's 
household can experience God's salvation. Wonderful story. Then in 2 Samuel 6, talks about the household being blessed. And Deuteronomy, rejoicing with the household. Then in the New Testament, quite a few cases. Um, you may have never noticed in Luke 19, it's not only Zacchaeus who experienced salvation. It was his house. Today's salvation has come to this house. Not today's salvation has come to this man. Today's salvation has come to this house. Whoever's in the house gets included in that salvation. You know, this happens, right? When we were knocking on doors a lot in Taiwan and even in the United States, whoever was in that house was very, very likely to get saved. (laughs) Right, Peter? (laughs) If you happened to be in the house at the time Peter Rowland knocked on your door, you're probably going to get saved. (laughs) That's just how it worked. And if you weren't in the house, you probably wouldn't because you didn't get a chance to hear the gospel. But this this is God's way. Then in John 4, the household of a nobleman. Acts 10, the household of Cornelius. Wow. Whoever was in the household of Cornelius experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentile part of the body of Christ. Man, you sure want to be home when that happens. (laughs) You want to be in Cornelius' house. When, when the Spirit gets poured out. And Acts 16, the household of Lydia, I really like that story. Wasn't Lydia the one who sold the purple goods? You know, Paul, he didn't go to that place to preach the gospel. He, he, it says he went down, I think they went down to the waterfront and they were going to pray. But when they got there... This woman, Lydia, was there. I don't think she's a special person. She sold purple dyed goods. I don't know what those are. Purple garments or something, maybe. And But it says not only did she get saved, her whole house. I don't think her whole house was with her. I mean, according to my reading, it, it doesn't say it in Acts. But what must have happened is that while they went down and talked to Lydia, she received the Lord, and then she must have brought Paul back to her house to, to, to get the rest of her household saved. It's fantastic, isn't it? That's how it should be. It should be. When the head of the household gets saved, the immediate response should be, what about my house? Come on, Paul, I'll feed you lunch. Come to my house, talk to my kids. A whole household got saved. Okay, then also in Acts 16, um, same situation. When Paul and Silas were in jail, and the Lord did a miraculous thing to release them from the jail, the jailer's family was not in the jail. But once the jailer got saved... His whole house got saved. So, again, I say it's not recorded in the book of Acts, but it's certainly implied. Paul and Silas, after they got out of prison, they must have gone to his house and 
got everybody else saved before they left town. Very good. This is a good pattern for us. When you meet somebody in a house, don't stop with the individual. The Lord wants the house. Maybe you meet meet a child. The Lord wants the parents. Maybe you meet a parent. The Lord wants the children. This is a principle that we need to understand. The household of Crispus is mentioned in Acts 18. And in Peter's preaching in Acts 2, before he said, be saved from this crooked and perverted generation, he said, the promise is to you and your children. Peter was clear. The Lord was going to save them and their children. In Luke 10, when the disciples went out two by two, the 70 went out to preach the gospel under the Lord's leading. He said, when you come to a house, you should say peace to this house. Again, not peace to this individual, but to this house. They were bringing the gospel not to individuals, but to houses. Then 1 Corinthians mentions the household of Stephanus, the first family in Corinth to be baptized by Paul. Paul did not baptize only Stephanus. He baptized the family of Stephanus. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul recognizes Onesiphorus, the house. He said, may God grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus because they were the only ones in that place who stood with the Apostle Paul. It's quite striking, isn't it? I'm sure there's more, but these are some examples to show us that when we contact people, everybody is part of a family. Everybody's part of a house, and the Lord's interest is the house. He, he, he would like to touch that whole house. Okay, number three. This is important, especially for the fathers and the mothers. In the Bible, the head of a family has the special responsibility before God for bringing the whole household to the Lord and to his service. The head of the household can decide for his entire Household. That's what Joshua did. He said, as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. Now, I know. Let's save time during the question and answers. I'll answer your question before you ask it. It doesn't, this does not violate the principle of man's free will. Everything in the Bible has two sides. In the end, the household of Joshua is going to decide for themselves whether or not they will serve Jehovah. But on the other hand, Joshua, as the head of the house, can set that pattern from the time his children are born, and they will never know anything else. You know, my children, my children, I was telling my wife the other day, I said, You know, our kids, every single week of their entire life that they lived in our house, there was a meeting in our house. They never knew anything different. 
They never knew anything different than the church life being in our house. As far as they're concerned, that's what everybody does on the whole earth. They just have the church life in their house. You see what I'm saying? It's like they, of course now, they're adults. They know that not the whole earth does that. But, but you know what I'm saying. We, 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 we decided that. And they, they followed. What else are they going to do? Now, still, at some certain point in time in the future, they had to decide if they wanted to continue following that or not. But in the beginning, we decided it for them. You can't decide for an adult, but you can decide for a child. You can't decide for them to believe in the Lord. That's an individual matter. But you can certainly guide them in that direction. We should declare with faith that we have decided that our family will be a family that worships God. Our family will be a family that believes in the Lord. If we exercise our authority to take the lead, our children will go along. Almost always true. Almost always. The household is ours, and we have the power to decide whether this house will serve the Lord. When we take this stand, everyone who is under us will come to the Lord. They'll have no other way to take. It generally always happens. There are exceptions. But I believe if we latch on to this principle and pray according to it, we will find that our children will believe in the Lord. And at least some of them will take the way of the church life. Okay, four, household salvation is one of the greatest principles in the Bible. It's a principle. It's not a law. It's a principle. Once you are saved, your whole household should be saved. As an individual, you must stand firm for the Lord, and then your household will change. When we invite people to come to a meeting of the church, many will come by themselves If we go to visit people in their homes, we will reach their whole household. How about that? I really like what the brothers are doing with the trainees in Hamilton. You know, I spend a lot of time. I cannot tell you how many thousands of doors I have knocked on. Knocking on doors after a while can be pretty rough. I mean, I've had a lot of doors slammed in my face. And I've had a lot of people get angry at me. Do they only do that in the U.S.? <laughs> you know, one day I, uh, on a Lord's Day, another brother and I, we decided we're going to go out door knocking. And it was right after the Lord's Day meeting, you know. So we go out and we're, we're knocking on doors. And we get to this one door. The guy opens the door and goes, what do you want? I said, oh, hello, sir. We'd just like to share with you the mystery of human life. He goes, you interrupted the Super Bowl to tell me this? (laughs) Slams the door. I told the other brother, I go, hey, this is great. We didn't even know it was the Super Bowl. (laughs) I said, thank God we got got saved. (laughs) Unfortunately, the man didn't get saved. 
Now, what a lot of the trainees are doing now, so good, they're, they're contacting the children first. Or you want to get to parents? Touch the children. That's what the Lord did. He said, bring the little children to me. And then it says, he blessed them. I don't know, what does that mean? How do you bless somebody? I'm not sure. I, I, I have a picture in my mind that he probably picked up that child. He probably said something. I think he probably said something. Man, if I'm the parent of that child, I say, wow, Jesus is blessing my child. Now I love Jesus. And that's the, you know, there's something to that. You, you enter into a house. Sometimes the way into a house, you're not going to get there through the parents. Uh, sometimes you will. Very often you won't. It wouldn't have worked with me. If somebody had knocked on my door, they, they would never have made it in the door. Um, but they might have made it through my kids. That, that's more likely. So consider this. One of the greatest failures of the Protestants is that they are too loose with their next generation. They allow their next generation to have the freedom to choose their own faith. I don't know if this is true in New Zealand. It's certainly true in the United States. And I grew up in the Catholic Church. The Catholics, of course, they do it in a very evil way. But they keep their people. They do it through fear and superstition and lies. But they keep their people. When I was a young Catholic boy, I was told... If you skip going to church when you could have gone, something bad will happen to you. That's what they taught us. Being a mischievous young man, I told my, one of my brothers, the one who was a year older than me, I said, hey, this Sunday, let's pretend we're sick. And... Let's just see if anything bad happens to us. <laughs> so we told our mother, we said, Oh, oh I, can't go to, I can't go to church today. So they all went to church. And then my brother and I, were sitting there. We're looking at each other. We're like, hey, nothing bad's happening. <laughs> and then like, hey, nothing bad happened. And then they came back and we had to pretend we're sick again. So then the next week, what we did is we told our parents, we said, hey, we're going to go to the early Mass, because we knew our parents liked to go to the later one. Then we went down to the Catholic Church, we played basketball for one hour, and then we got the bulletin out of the church, and we we rode our bikes home. My parents said, you go to church? We go, Yep. Got the proof. Got the proof. Because I had now I had made the great discovery that nothing would happen if I skipped. No, seriously, that's what they told us. Is something really bad's going to happen to you? That's demonic. That's terrible. But I'll tell you, the Catholics in general, and Brother Lee said this. They have a good way of retaining their people. They do. 
One way is through the schools. You know, I went to Catholic schools. They, man, they try to indoctrinate you. Um, it's a miracle I got out of there, but I did. Uh, I just never liked it. But um, they have they have a high retention rate. The Catholicism in the U.S. They have a high retention rate with their own children. The other thing they do is they have lots of children. My parents had nine. You know, that's part of their that's part of their plan. Nobody's going to convert to Catholicism. So their increase is just have a lot of kids. It's what the Mormons do too. Very few people convert to Mormonism in the US. Very few. But the Mormons all have twelve kids. Even if half of them leave, they get a lot of increase. That's their whole strategy. And Islam's pretty much the same way. Think about it. But Protestant Christianity, this is the point Burley's making, for some reason, they don't keep very many. It's interesting, huh? Interesting. Uh, and, and please don't misunderstand, we are not following the Catholics. We're certainly not following the Mormons, and we are definitely not following Islam. But the point is, they're smart enough to know Concentrate on your own children. If you do, you will gain quite a good increase. Why aren't the Protestants doing that? I don't know. Okay, then here's a a little bit of a balancing word. We may be selfish even in praying for the salvation of our children. We could be selfish in anything, and even in our... We could overcare... We could be overly concerned for our own children. Um, Forgive me, sisters, but this is generally the problem more with the sisters. We may be selfish even in praying for the salvation of our children. Not to pray for them is wrong, but to be fully occupied with prayer for them is also wrong. The matter of the salvation of our children, whoops, this is a typo. It says spiritual warfare should be spiritual welfare. (laughs) It is a spiritual warfare to get them saved. But they're not involved in the warfare. Talking about their welfare. Sorry about that. The matter of the salvation of our children and their spiritual welfare is also a test to us. You know, sometimes... In fact, I would say very often, as the children get a little older, intermediate age, high school age, university, they go through difficulties. Oh, that's a big test to the parents. That's a big, it's a bigger test to the parents than it is to the children. Um, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing. Uh, I went through that. I've seen many, many, many saints go through it. It's a test. And the Lord purifies our heart. What are we actually here for? Are we here for our family or are we here for the church? And eventually the Lord purifies us. And I heard a good testimony on this point. Um, a sister shared, she said that, she was praying for her children to be saved, and it wasn't happening for some reason. And, you know, most of the, I don't know how it is here. In the U.S., most of the children of the saints, they generally get baptized intermediate age. 
which is about the right time. Um, you know, for a person to be regenerated, what has to happen? They have to make a conscious and voluntary choice with their own will. Am I right? Some parents are a little superstitious. They think, if I can get my kid to say, Oh, Lord Jesus, he's saved. No, 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 no. There's no such thing. You have to make a conscious and voluntary choice with your will. It's the only way for any human being to be saved. Now, people may be capable of doing that at different ages, but most people are really capable of doing that about the time they're in intermediate school. And you know what the picture of that is with the Jews? The Jews, when a child is 12, does that number ring a bell from Luke chapter 2? When a child is 12, they go through a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah is Hebrew. Bar means son. Mitzvah means law. They become a son of the law at the age of 12. That means they become accountable to keep the law at the age of 12. Before the age of 12, they're not accountable to keep the law. Because how could they be? That's a picture. It's not, don't, don't apply this in a legal way. In general, it's about the right age. Around that age is when a person is ready to make a conscious and voluntary choice with their will to pursue the Lord. That's why the Lord's life from birth to the age of 12 is not recorded in the Bible. In Luke chapter 2, he's 12. We have no idea what happened between 1 and 12. But at 12, he begins to read the Bible. He begins to go to the temple. He begins to care for the Father's things. That's about when a person is ready to think for themselves and to do that. So pretty much that's when it will happen. Not always. I know there are exceptions. I know that. But that's a, it's a good guideline. You know, in our service for the children, don't be in a rush. Don't be in a rush. It actually would be better for them to get saved later. It'll be more solid. If you rush it, they may be regenerated, but it might be a weak experience. And in the Christian life, it makes a huge difference how you start. If you have a weak experience of salvation, you're getting off on a very bad start. If you have a strong experience of salvation, you'll make a lot of progress. That applies not only to adults, it applies to children. Don't be in a rush. You got... They're living with you. You got them for 20 years. They don't need to call on the name of the Lord when they're five. Really, they don't. When they're five, you should be preparing that vessel. You should be molding that vessel. You should be perfecting that vessel so that when Christ comes in, this vessel will be an excellent container of Christ. Don't be in a rush. Don't be in a rush. It won't help them. Anyway, this sister, uh, her kids were, were beyond that age. They were past the intermediate age. And, and they, 
they weren't expressing a lot of interest in receiving the Lord. And she's a good sister in the church life and a good mother. She's, man, I don't know what's going on. And she's praying so much for her children. Nothing was happening. <clears throat> One day she testified. She said, I realized that my prayer for my children was selfish. So I started to pray for all the other children in the church. As soon as she started praying for all the other children, her children wanted to be baptized. I've heard a few testimonies like this, and I think this is part of the Lord's purifying of us. If If we overcare for our own children, he will remind us, this is about the church. This isn't about us and our family. Okay, D, we should raise up our children according to the Lord's teaching. This is our duty, and we should do it. But eventually their salvation and seeking of the Lord depend upon God's eternal choosing and predestination. None of us want to hear this, but it's just the fact in the Bible. Uh, According to Romans chapter 9, God created vessels of mercy. He also created vessels of wrath. Don't ask me how to reconcile that with 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 5. I have no idea. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 5 says that God desires all men to be saved. But Romans 9 tells us that he specifically created certain human beings to be vessels of wrath, and he did not predestinate them unto salvation. And it gives an example, Pharaoh. According to the Bible, God knew that Pharaoh would be an evil person, and he, and he wanted Pharaoh to be an evil person because he needed Pharaoh to be an evil person for the carrying out of his economy. Man, am I glad I wasn't born Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath from his birth. But you have, you know, don't try to second guess God. Don't get into your mind. Could Pharaoh have gotten saved? Would it have been possible? I don't know. This is, leave that to God. In the end, we should pray, Lord, may my child be a vessel of mercy. Make this little one a vessel of mercy unto glory. Have mercy on this child, Lord, for the sake of your economy, for the sake of the building up of the church. That's all we can do. If God doesn't do his part, that's up to him. So let me summarize. For for you and me, for our children, there's three people involved in this matter. There's you. There's God, and there's the child. All three parties have a part in this matter. Will this child be saved? Will this child seek the Lord? All three parties have a role, and nobody can do the other person's part, can they? So what is God's part? Only God can predestinate and choose. Only God can do that. What can the parents do? They can't choose. They can present a proper pattern. 
They can guide the child. They can do what they want the child to do. They can pray for the child. They can speak to the child. But they can't decide for the child. Then the part of the child is to decide. Every man has a free will. Every man at some point must exercise their own free will to voluntarily choose the Lord. You can't trick your children into believing into the Lord. They will make the decision. Most of them will decide to do it. They will. So don't get too overly concerned. But do understand that your responsibility as a parent has a limit. It has a limit. You can't choose for them. So let's say you have a child who doesn't believe in the Lord. doesn't mean you were a terrible parent. It means that the child did not exercise their will to choose. Um, If that happens, God forbid. If it does, don't condemn yourself. And likewise, I would say if you have a child who is regenerated and chooses not to remain in the church life, don't condemn yourself. That's their choice. All we can do is our part. And the main thing we do, which we will see after lunch, is present a pattern to them. That's the main thing we can do. Okay, let's pray a little bit, and then I think we'll be ready for lunch.